Hi, this is Perry Sean, author of Sell More with Sales Coaching, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, author of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Perry Sean. Perry works with sales VPs and their teams how to coach, increase sales, and improve the client experience. She leverages the neuroscience of leadership and buying to help businesses grow through one-on-one coaching, team training, and online programs. Her articles have appeared in Selling Power, Salesforce.com, Entrepreneur, Sales and Marketing Management Magazine, Inc., and Forbes. Her company, the Coaching and Sales Institute, has worked with such teams as KPMG, GE, Hallmark, AT&T, Direct Energy, and the Royal Bank of Canada and Rogers. Perry is based in Ontario and is here to talk about her book, Sell More with Sales Coaching, Practical Solutions for Your Everyday Sales Challenges. Welcome, Perry. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. Say, Perry, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Mm, My father. He was an executive of a large corporation, and he was responsible for 700 people. And the skills that he developed as a leader there were really clear in our family dynamic and household. Does that mean you had agendas at the dinner table? (laughs) We had family meetings with agendas, yes. (laughs) Outstanding. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the lessons you took away about being organized and being able to give people direction? What were some of the things that you take away from that experience? What I took away from being with him in my time, you know, we didn't have a lot of time because he would travel, but... When I was with him, it was all about what are your particular skills? What is it that, you know, he would help me with? What is it that you really like to do? I do the same with my brothers. And he would join us as we would explain to him why it was important to us. And that to me was such a gift because it taught me the importance of engaging other people in what's important to them. And because of it, he developed really close relationships with anyone that he worked with because he demonstrated, in my mind, that he cares and he cares about what's important to you. And then, of course, he was able to navigate it to, you know, how can we leverage that in the family dynamic? So I wanted to learn about finances. My father was really good at this kind of thing. So he made a deal with me as a, oh, I think I was 10 years old. And he made a deal with me. He said, look, You can take care of the food for the family, and I'll give you the exact same budget that we use as a family, but it's yours now. And as long as you're feeding us all, no one's hungry, and you're cooking the meals, you get to keep any money that you would like afterwards, (laughs) as long as you made sure everything was taken care of outside of that budget. Well, I got to tell you, I learned how to be so economical (laughs) as a result of him setting me up that way, so that then... I knew how to manage a budget really well. He could have sat there and taught me this and, you know, the the more logical sort of process to it by giving me the opportunity to make money by 
saving and planning and budgeting. Uh, you know, at first I was kind of clunky with it, but I got to the point where, you know, back then I was making an extra $10 a week, which was huge for me at that age. I'm sure your friends were probably getting like a dollar a week allowance or 50 cents a week. And here you were clearing $10 a week. Exactly. <laughs> and the family wasn't trying to subsist on cornflakes and Pop-Tarts, I bet. Uh, no, actually, we had real meals. So it was awesome, you know, chicken and sweet potatoes and all the rest. But I just managed to learn how to, you know, watch for the sales and watch for this and plan my meals uh, accordingly. But it was a great opportunity for learning. Wow. And I think of the whole cluster of skills that you got to develop as a result of that opportunity, the sense of responsibility of knowing that when you got home from school, you had homework and then also meal planning. <laughs> and shopping on the weekends to make sure I could do that meal planning. Now, at 10 years old, you weren't able to drive. How did you get the groceries back and forth or just enlist one of your parents? Yes. Actually, he was the one who would go with me. So it was great. Can you think of the time when as a business leader, that experience informed you and inspired you perhaps to give someone else responsibility and let them run with something to show what they could do. We have interns that work with us. And what I do when they first start with us is I find out what's most important to them and what kind of experience they would love to have. And then I put them in charge of a project. Most leaders or most business owners wouldn't do that. They usually give interns a lower level role. But I find by putting them in charge of something, one allows me to know if this is someone, you know, because it is like a co-op situation that they're working with us and uh, allows me to know whether this is the kind of individual I want to continue to work with us or not. So in some ways, it's like a, a job opportunity to see you know, a job interview to see if they're a match. But, oh, do they ever get so engaged? Like, right. Right now, we have someone who is in charge of our YouTube channel and monetizing that. And so he's been learning and working on strategy. And I had a meeting with him earlier today, and he's so on fire because he's got this great opportunity that's exciting for him. That's great. I imagine you probably give them a budget as well so they could experiment and, and see the results of testing various hypotheses. Yes, you read my mind. <laughs> It just makes good sense and I've been impressed so far with all that you've shared. Perry, when you wrote Sell More with Sales Coaching, clearly it's not only something that comes from a huge amount of experience where you've been working with people at all levels, from individual high performers, people who are put into sales coaching roles and sales management roles, as well as people who had oversight over sales managers. Because the questions and exercises, and let me just tell people who are listening, the book has exercises, lots of fill-in-the-blank opportunities to elicit from you what are your processes, your weak points, ways to strengthen what you're working on. So be ready for that. When you get the book, make sure you have something to write with in hand. Mm -hmm. When you think about that, what was your objective for getting this book into the hands of people who have responsibility for bringing revenue into their companies? The book was specifically designed for sales managers and those who the sales managers report to, specifically to help with the sales team. So I, I designed it. You'll be able to see my teacherness in this. My first career in life, I was a high school teacher. I was actually, I don't share this very often, I was nominated for the Prime Minister's Award of Teaching Excellence for what I was doing. And to me, a systematic approach for someone to be able to help their team members was the goal that I wanted. So that the first chapter for them to be able to diagnose 
what's going on with their team and what sales issues they probably have. And then for them to sort of like a choose your own adventure, you know, go to the chapter that will help you the most with your team currently was the goal. And it was a journey because I would run by you know different chapters by different leaders that I knew and say, you know, tell me about this. Does this meet the needs? So it was actually tested, not only based on my experience, I've been doing this now 20 years, but I you know, also based on feedback from uh, people, sales managers, et cetera, sales VPs to really get at what will help them most. I give them the questions to ask if they, you know, if you know that this, if you're having a problem with the team members being too self-focused, then here are the questions that you would ask them in sales coaching. And here's a list of action items for you to consider. And how do you know that this is happening? These are the things to look for. And here's the information that will help you. And so it was very deliberately designed. I remember when I first met with my, the executive editor at Wiley, when he was reviewing it, and he says, Perry, I so love the way you write. And I said, well, thank you. And uh, he says, it's so perfect for people who don't read. And I went, pardon? <laughs> and he said, it was designed in such a way that a person can find out what their issue is, and then they can skim and scan to find the part that's most important to them. And uh, he said, that's what we're finding these days, that people are actually skimming and scanning more than they're actually uh, reading it from cover to cover. It is. It's like a diagnostic manual. If this is not working in your car, here are some things you can try. If this isn't working with your sales team, here are some questions to ask in order to properly diagnose it. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that this is like this presupposes that a sales manager has observed that things are not performing as well as he or she would like and believes that they can improve. And while that sounds fundamental and perhaps even elementary, haven't you also experienced that that's not always the case with many sales managers, that they don't look at this and say, well, this is the team that was hired for me. I'm now in this job. I've got to make the best of it. And just through exhorting them and looking to quote unquote motivate them, which really it doesn't, it often demotivates them to have that kind of micromanagement just to keep an eye on their, their numbers and help them work harder. This really presupposes that if they think differently and take different actions, they'll improve faster and measurably. Huge. It makes a huge difference. So let me tell you about an organization that I worked with. They are uh, an insurance company and they, they have a multiple contact centers. And in this one particular contact center, I was working with Amir and as the sales VP, and we were having our conversation about you know, how do we approach this? He wanted to improve the sales results. They currently were getting a close ratio of uh, 6%. Whoa, that's low. And it's low, but for their industry, that was the norm. Okay. He said, look, you know, Perry, I would really love it if we could get to 12%. You would make my day and my career if we could do that. I said, well, first, we got to start with the diagnostics and figure out what's going on. In our conversation, Amir and I, what we did is we worked out our strategy for how we were going to approach this. And what I did with his partnership is I interviewed three of his team members who were on the front line. I interviewed two of the managers. And then I surveyed 
each level in the organization. So frontline, management, directors, and of course, Amir. And to find out what was really going on and what the problem was. And what I discovered was, first off, they were doing most of the talking rather than doing the listening. And two, when they were speaking, they were speaking more than five sentences, uh, sorry, four sentences at a time. And my research is that once you get beyond four sentences, you can lose the client so much. So what we did is I coached the sales managers and trained them on how to actually once get the team to do that much better, meaning that how do you help them develop their four sentences? How do you get them prepared for that? How do you teach them how to ask more uh, better questions? And then I worked with the team and help them learn the basic principles of the neuroscience of buying so that they understood that it wasn't about them talking so much. The research shows that most people have made the decision unconsciously to buy. Our responsibility is to ask the right questions to help them become more conscious and engaged so that they become aware of that decision that they've made. And so with that combination on both sides, Within six weeks, we not only went from, and I just love this number, we not only went from six to 12%, but we didn't, and we didn't go to 18%. They actually went to a 29% close ratio. Wow. Made a huge difference to their results. And with any organized, I mean, that's the best results we've seen any organization do at this particular time. But in six weeks, you can get those kinds of results if you are really, truly focused and you've done the diagnostic to figure out what is the actual issue so you know what you're working towards. I'm imagining what it must have been like for some of their longtime accounts when they were asked a question and they actually stopped to listen to the answer. It must have been, wow, you must have just gotten back from vacation. This is great. <laughs> So there's an instance where you had a lot of buy-in. What was it like when people, I'm sure all the results didn't come after six weeks. There probably were some results that were coming after just a few days or even the first couple of weeks. It was interesting because in one case, when I was doing the training, there was a woman in the group, Elizabeth. And when she heard that it wasn't about, because she was thinking she had to talk and convince people to buy. When she learned that people have the majority of their buying decision complete and that it was unconscious, she started crying. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't help but notice. And so I went over to speak with her as I got the rest of the group working on an exercise. I said, tell me about what's going on for you. And she shared, she said, Perry, I have worked so hard to try and convince people to buy. And I go home and I feel awful at the end of the day. She said, when you've told me that all I'm supposed to do is help them with their buying decision that they've already made, she said, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved that what I'm going to be able to do is focus in on helping people. And it was like, it was a breath of fresh air for her. And she's one of the ones who she worked so hard beforehand and tried so hard for her manager, but she didn't do so well. And after the training, she was one of the stars because she was one of those individuals that really cares about people. And it somehow just that little shift in approach made a huge difference for her engagement in what she was doing. So it was lovely. That really is remarkable. 
Because so many people, I think, can relate to that. They have someone working on their team, and you notice that they're putting in time, they're working very hard, and they're not producing the results that are expected without taking the time to ask, to check in, to find out what assumptions they're working under that may or may not be valid. They might be really spinning their wheels and putting in effort in ways that really aren't advancing their cause or stopping themselves from doing things. Or like in Elizabeth's case, thinking that they had to talk the person into submission in order to make the sale. Exactly. What are a couple points of neuroscience and selling that you've uncovered through your research that helps people identify and connect with prospects who are curious about what's going on, but haven't made a buying decision yet? Several things that really stand out to me, and, and they're, they're very subtle things, but they're so important. I've worked with four neuroscience grad students combing through the research. And what we've discovered, because I'm looking for what is it that makes a difference in a conversation, that's key. And so first off is to know that the person has already got a major part of their buying decision complete. Two, the research shows that we buy based on emotion and then our brain then goes to the logic to justify that decision. So that no matter what we're selling, and yes, I've sold highly technical things, there's still emotional engagement. So part of it is knowing what questions to ask. You earn the right to ask a question that emotionally engages someone. So you know, to work on what those specific questions are, but to be very much aware of, and this is a piece of research that I think is so important for salespeople to be aware of. And that is that if we perceive, if we're, you know, someone is selling to us, and if we perceive that the individual is not listening to us, what actually happens for us is it activates the pain centers in our brain. So what does that mean? Like, think about if you've, I know, we all have a significant person in our life. And if that person's not listening to us, we get this kind of aggravated feeling. And when we feel like we're not being heard, that just might be that activation of those pain centers in our brain. And to me, when a salesperson, you know, they, whether it's talking and, and, you know, sentence after sentence, or if it's a question that doesn't demonstrate that they listened to what happened beforehand, then they will lose a person and activate those pain centers. This reminds me of a story that you described in the book where somebody had called you and you said, this sounds like a sales call. I'm waiting for another really important call from about a family member. Yeah. And they said, oh no, it's not a sales call. Yet clearly it was. Can you re repeat that story for me, please? Yes. This fellow called. It was at a time where someone in my family was like really, really sick. I mean, seriously sick. And we were waiting for a call from the specialist at the hospital and, you know, to determine what the next steps were in, in her procedures. And this fellow called and I said, look, I, I was very transparent with him. And he said to me, no, this is not a sales call, even when I asked. And I said, all right, then let me hear you out. And as he's going, it became very clear. It was with the way he was asking the questions and he was... He was asking, first of all, can I speak with Perry Sean, the proprietor of this organization? And he was asking about your printing solutions. What printing solutions do you use? Are you happy with them? And it, it's just like, you could have spotted this a mile away. And every time that I, I read you describe the story and you asked him, please, if this is a sales call, it'd be so much better. <laughs> you were like giving him every opportunity 
to make a better impression. And he just needed to complete this call to check it off his list or something. Mm-hmm. I bet you you had some pain centers activated in your brain during this call. Oh, did I ever. And I was not a happy camper with the dynamic because he would not let go of the bone. And finally, I just said, I'm really sorry. I must say goodbye. You know, I've got to take, you know, I've got to be off the call. But to me, when a salesperson at the beginning tells you that it's, that they're not selling, that to me is the biggest lie that you get. We know that we have, we all have trust antenna. And that trust antenna is so, you know, when we pick up a phone and it's not someone we know, our trust antenna is out and alive and well, and wanting to know know, what is the purpose of this call. And so often salespeople are not clear in that dynamic. I'm also one who's not. So wait a second, not just clear, evasive, right? He outright lied. And, you know, because he was definitely selling and I was wanting to be, you know, the, the polite Canadian in the dynamic, which it did not work uh, for him or for I in that dynamic. And I have a policy in our household that we will not buy from a salesperson who does not demonstrate good sales skills. And I must say that it has saved our business and our family dynamic so much money because we don't want to reinforce the wrong behaviors. That's right. Gosh, we were in the market for a timeshare. You called it just the right time, but your rapport skills were really so low. I'm going to have to pass today. Exactly. It's really interesting because trust is so important. In order to build any type of sales relationship or business relationship, it's got to be predicated upon trust. And salespeople need to know from their managers or from listening to sharp trainers and experienced people like yourself, that this is not something that furthers their career, even though in the moment it feels like they're fulfilling what they were set out to do. Again, it's an example of making assumptions that really don't serve you well. It goes to one of the other points, which is that people who are selling sometimes operate as if their their prospects were enemies that needed to be subdued and overcome. Yes. And it sounds so funny to say, yet the behaviors are in support of that wild assumption. Can you point out how you came to language that example? And what are some of the questions to ask to uncover whether that's happening in organizations of people listening? I'm a big believer that you want the sales management to not only be talking about the sales conversations that the team is having, but also to be listening to those conversations. Now, as a sales manager, it's not to step in and take over. It's rather to be a fly on the wall and then coach afterwards, because then that way you can prevent that from happening. Because if you're not doing that, then you really don't know what your team is saying. I was working for a very large financial institution, very large. And I was brought in by the sales VP to figure out what was wrong as to why they weren't getting the sales that they wanted. And so I had the opportunity to listen to calls, speak with the sales managers, etc. Well, I started listening to the calls. And as I was listening to the calls, I was, I mean, shocked by what I heard. And it's not unusual. I'm going to share. It's not unusual. But the team, almost every single member of the team was saying, it's expensive, but it's expensive, but. And 
I was like, oh gosh, they've. So I spoke with the manager of this particular team and I said, how often do you listen to the calls? And he said, well, I've not ever taken the time to listen to the calls. They record them all, but they haven't taken time to listen to them. They get the team members to listen to themselves, but they didn't do it with the management so they can work on improvement. So they didn't know what they were doing well or did or, you know what was working and what wasn't working based on their expectation. This is from the Lord of the Flies School of Sales? Yes. So then I brought the manager into the room where he could listen to the calls that I was listening to. And I played one after the other to that specific spot. And where those words were being used. Expensive, but, expensive, but, expensive, but. You should have seen his face go white. (laughs) And then we started working on let's do coaching in real time so that you're doing observational coaching, that together you're listening to a call, what's working, what's not. And this is a key factor in sales coaching. And that is to ensure that you're coaching reality, not theory. Because too often, the sales managers will talk about theory. We all know about theory, but it's what do we do in reality that counts. (laughs) And so I'll say that that organization did not have any of the team members saying expensive but anymore after that scenario. Such a simple change, and I bet it led to measurable results of their sales numbers. Yes. Definitely. They increased by 20% in a matter of a couple of weeks. Perry, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I'm ready. All right. We started off talking about a person who inspired you growing up, and you shared how your father was instrumental in sharing lessons and giving you chances and opportunities to really gain true responsibility. When you were a teenager, what's a song you found inspiring? Oh, gosh. I didn't listen to much music. Seals and Crofts was one of my favorite when I was a kid. Summer Breeze. There you go. Summer Breeze. In the last six months, what's the best $100 or so purchase that you've made? This is going to sound really simple. Paper. Notepads. I am a prolific writer of taking of notes, reflection of ideas. I fill up a notepad of 200 pages in a matter of a month. Now, this is a non-tangible one. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? In the last year, it's been not flying. I have not flown anywhere for seven months now when I used to get on planes all the time. And it has allowed me to be far more efficient. I'm a very efficient individual. That's one of the things that I love. But uh Yeah, not getting on planes has really made a big difference in efficiencies. So let's take a step back. And one of the tools that salespeople use are CRMs. It's such a big deal to go and cross the chasm for a company that hasn't been using a CRM to using a CRM. And then so often they quickly slide into malpractice with CRMs where they're using it to berate and belittle people who are reporting in their details rather than as a way to track and guide them. What would you say are a couple do's and don'ts with using CRMs in order to lead highly effective sales teams? 
first, I would make the sales team part of the team when, if you're selecting one, to make the sales team part of the selection process. Two, position it as an advantage to the sales team so that they're seeing it as something that will make their life that much easier. Do you have an example of a company that had adopted one and then engaged you to help the salespeople use it more effectively to their advantage? I've been working with them for probably 10 years now. I have long-term relationships with my clients. They got tired of their CRM probably five years ago, and then they engaged me to help them with what to do. And up until that point, the sales team hated their CRM, did not like it. It wasn't designed for... There's... If you design it so that you can monitor the numbers, but also so that the sales team can be more effective and efficient is the key. So what I did with them was we met with the sales team, found out what they would like to have in a CRM that would help them do better uh, going forward and made sure that the CRM that they chose as their new one matched and aligned with that. And so it became the criteria by which they used to choose the next one. So they were engaged in that process along the way. And then on a regular basis, every six months, the organization, the, the senior leader in sales, the sales VP, would check in with the team as to Oh, what else do you need in the CRM? What else will help you? What else will make a difference? And then this past week, we met with the team. We've spent weeks in preparation for it, meeting with the tech team who's responsible for the CRM. And we worked on a process because this has been an unusual year. We worked on what what do you need in the CRM for next year? And let's create within the CRM an ability to strategize and plan on one sheet, on one screen, so that they could predict and plan how they're going to meet their actual targets. And they could go in and look at, I call it, you know, identifying the knowledge gap and filling the knowledge gap of your client to help them get to the better results that they are looking for. And that to me was part of the key that made the difference for the team last week. They were, <laughs> this is may sound for those of you who struggle with a CRM, the team was actually excited when we presented to them what it looks like and all the functionality of this one page for planning for the next year that most sales teams don't get excited about that. But if it's positioned properly, it can be. And they were, I mean, they spent several hours during the program actually working on this one page, one screen document to prepare for the upcoming year. You had salespeople enthusiastically engaging with software that wasn't directly tied to a financial incentive? Well, they would get their bonuses, of course, but uh, no, this was, they were excited because it would make the difference for them. That's really a profound change. And I'm sure that the culture will reflect that. Any CRM is only as good as the data that's put in and the reports that it generates. And without the input, you can't create useful reports. For people to be enthusiastically engaged and excited with entering their data and seeing how close they are to achieving their monthly and quarterly goals, that makes a world of difference for every business leader who's listening. Yes. And Perry, you have just been so generous with sharing your experiences and knowledge with me on my quest for the best. You talked about your father, who I think a lot of us smile in recognition of what we would learn uh, having a father like yours who 
talked about agendas and gave you responsibilities for project management at 10 years old. And that must have been just such a great experience. And then about your interns, where you turn around and give them real responsibility for producing business results. So they're really investing time and getting a huge payback because of the experience that they gain. We talked about the importance of sales managers creating teams that report in and using a systematic approach so that it can be repeated. You shared about Amira, who was a sales VP and was able to really boost the conversion rate, not just for close ratios, not just from 6%, but even beyond from 6% to 12%. And being able to really go beyond that to 29%, which is a huge boost at such a critical juncture in the sales process. And one of the people who participated in that, Elizabeth, really felt such relief that she actually cried, thinking that she no longer had to do something which she really was never taught to do. She never received feedback or training telling her she didn't need to do it. And yet it felt like she was really looking to attack her prospects rather than work with them, support them and serve them. You shared with us the importance of using research based neuroscience in selling and how it really helps us understand that. When people come in as a prospect, they've already made up a large part of their decision to make a purchase. And it's important to make sure that you can support them and engage them in order to help make them aware of that rather than try to start at the beginning or take them off of the point where they came in already predisposed to buy. And everyone should remember the point we talked about where if you indicate that you're not listening to a prospect or a client or a customer, that it actually activates pain centers in the brain. So that small furrow in the brow you see might be the tip of the iceberg of how much pain, misery, or frustration you're causing someone by not listening to them thoroughly. Perry, for these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you for your generosity and your knowledge and expertise that you've shared on my quest for the best. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we say goodbye, Perry, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Uh, best place to find out about me is on our website, which is Coaching and Sales Institute, or to reach out on LinkedIn. That's great. Well, in the show notes, we're going to link to your website. We're going to link to your book and all of your social media, including LinkedIn, to make it super easy for people listening to this to find you. Perry Sean, author of Sell More with Sales Coaching. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.